We start today, though, with Kevin Falcon. I'm pleased to welcome him back, the former B.C. Liberal Finance Minister. He is now running for the leadership of the Liberal Party. A lot of people think he's going to win it next month. I think one sign of that right now is the NDP going after him here. Pleased to welcome him back. Kevin Falcon, thank you for coming on today. Hey, great to be here, Mike. I wish I could participate in that debate because you're absolutely right. I think the NDP are going to go after home equity. No question. You think so? You think the BC NDP are going to tax, tax people's homes? Absolutely. It was well, in the what? report that they commissioned by their own former finance minister who said, get rid of the homeowner grants and tax equity. Look at taxing equity on homes. Believe me, oh. they don't bring out reports like that unless they're laying the groundwork. Okay, let's talk about the NDP going on the attack after, uh, uh, against you here right now. Now, this goes back to a comment that you made in a televised leaders debate on Global News here this week. I'm going to play the clip here for the listeners here in a moment. Just to give the listeners some context here, one of your opponents here had suggested maybe there should be term limits for MLAs, maybe put a limit or a cap on how long you can serve in the legislature instead of racking up you know, massive pensions for 20, 30 years. And here's what you had to say, and then I'll tell you what the NDP think about it and get your thoughts. Yeah, look, uh, you know, as I listen to you, uh, Stan, I have to say I'm increasingly intrigued by the idea because I'm uh, imagining now that virtually the entire NDP caucus would be wiped out with term limits. Absolutely. Um, this is the best job they'll ever have, and they'll hang on to it like a drowning person with a life raft. Okay, so NDP MLAs, this is the best job they'll ever have. They're like, they'd hang on to it like a drowning person with a life raft. What is the point you're trying to make there because the NDP are not happy about it? <laughs> well, the point lightheartedly that I was making, but there's a very under, there's an undercore of very seriousness here is that, you know, I think that we have a challenge right now in our province with what I call career politicians. These are people that have spent their entire lives being professional politicians or staffers to politicians. In fact, the entire front bench, the leadership of the NDP uh, government today, whether it's Rob Fleming or Mike Farnworth or Adrian Dix or even the Premier Horgan, they've spent their entire lives as career politicians. And my concern about that is they haven't got the real-world experience that's necessary to deal with some of the big challenges we face. And, and that has never been more evident than what we've seen in their response to the flooding too little, too late, or the forest fires, you know, waiting weeks to call, uh, you know, a state of emergency, or even the, the heat waves where, my goodness, over 600 people lost their lives just because of incompetence in managing the situation. So I think that um, real-life experience matters, and I think career politicians are a challenge at a time when our oh. economy faces so many pressures. Okay, well, the New Democrats are saying that their people are not professional career politicians like you're suggesting. They're saying a lot of them had other jobs before they got into politics. They say they've got teachers, firefighters, bus drivers, farmers, uh, police officers, engineers, millwrights, nurses, flight attendants, social workers etc. So they're saying they're not career politicians and that you're, you're mocking them. And they say this shows you're an elitist, that you're against working people. How do you respond well, to that? Well, it's, it's, of course, absurd. My mother was a nurse uh, for over 30 years. My wife's a teacher. I mean, that, that's just nonsense. Look, all I'm saying is what they lack are people that come from the background. And those backgrounds are important. I acknowledge that for sure. Millwrights, social workers, teachers, bus drivers. I think those are important backgrounds, too. Uh, but what they really lack are people that also have some experience 
in the business world, because I do think it's important at a time when we're facing inflationary pressures, when we have huge housing challenges, look at how they respond to these issues. Um, on housing, for example, they layered on a whole blizzard of new taxes back in 2018. They said that this was going to result uh, in fixing housing challenges. Uh, all the people that knew things about the housing industry were saying to them, that's ridiculous. It's just going to add costs. And here we are three years later, and housing is far, far more expensive. It's not working. And it's not that they're bad people. I would argue they just don't know what they're doing. And I think it's important that we have people in government that do have some business background experience, too, to mix in with the millwrights and the bus drivers and the teachers, et cetera. Okay, well, I mean, I know the NDP would say that the Liberals have got some, probably got some career politicians of their own. You know, there's some MLAs that have been around for a long time, like Linda Reed, who didn't run last time, but she was an MLA for 29 years. What, what did she do? Be, what was her profession before she got into politics? What did she do? I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't recall what she did uh, before <laughs> no, she wanted to politics. But look, Mike, but, but I do want to be clear about this. There, I'm yeah. not saying, there is room for people that want to spend their lives as politicians. Don't, and that's yeah. one of the reasons why I said in that debate that I wouldn't just come down and say, no, we should have term limits for sure. Because W.A.C. Bennett, one of my great heroes, uh, also spent 20 years uh, as the premier of the province. Mind you, he came from a background of, of a successful small business person. But look, I, you know, we've got a mix and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that the mix should also include people like that we've got in the caucus today, like Corinne Kirkpatrick, a former CEO of a nonprofit family services, trained as an accountant and lawyer. Mike Morris, a former superintendent of the RCMP that covered the entire northern area, or Teresa Watt, who helped found the Omni television station. I mean, Though, you know, well, that diversity of experience, I think, is also important. Well, you know, the current leader of your party, I guess the, the interim leader, more accurately, is Shirley Bond. And I know you're friends with her, and she's been an MLA for, what, 20 years? What, 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 what did she do before she got into politics? Well, Mike, again, it's the mix. I told you. I, well, I, what, I, what did she do? What was her, what was her job? Before she was, she was school board, she was chair of the school board. Oh, in, she was a politician. Uh, she was a she was a municipal politician no, no, before I, she became Mike, a provincial politician. Mike, I want to underscore what I've been saying. I don't have a problem with people that have long time experience. My concern is the a big majority of the front bench of the NDP are career politicians, and I think at a time right now uh, where they're sending out press releases trying to take out of context something I said, they should be sending out press releases. Uh, explaining why they're, you know, for example, screwing up by, by, uh, you know, saying they announced an indefinite extension of restrictions for the business community on Twitter. Then the next thing you know, they're sending out things saying, oh, no, that's not quite what we meant. Then they're holding press conferences trying to explain what they meant. Uh, we do need to have some leadership in government that knows how to manage big challenges. And I'm concerned that we don't. You've okay. talked in your program many times about the Massey Tunnel. That's yeah. a classic example where you've got somebody... Rob Fleming, who has, again, no business background, overseeing and canceling a project that came in $900 million under the bid price, could have been opening this summer a new 10-lane bridge, and instead they're going to go forward with this bizarre idea for a tunnel that would give us the same number of lanes we have today and cost a billion dollars more. It just okay. makes no sense. Okay, speaking to Kevin Falcon, the former Liberal MLA, former Liberal Finance Minister, he's running for the leadership of the B.C. Liberal Party. Uh, that will be decided next month. Let me let me ask you about your private sector background and work experience outside of politics, because 
you're coming back from the private sector back into public life here running for this job. You were a real estate developer, right, in private life here. And the NDP going after you for that. They say you're a rich real estate developer, that you're an elitist who's against working people, and that maybe this is why you want to get into power as, as premier, leader of the Liberal Party, so you can reward your rich friends. That's what they said yesterday. What do you say to that? Well, you know, why do you, you know, why do you guys just accept what they say? I mean, it's such a nonsense. I'm not accepting it. I'm telling I'm just asking you what you, that's what they said. So what is your yeah, response well, to it? Yeah, well, my response is, of course, it's, it's nonsense. I, I, I'm involved in a company called Anthem Capital. We have investments in the technology sector, the natural resource sector, and yes, the housing sector. And as I said in my debate last, uh, the other night, um, I think it would be actually refreshing to have somebody that's premier of the province that actually understands the housing sector. Because I can tell you, these people do not. And until we figure out that we have to get a hell of a lot more supply into our market, and we've got to legislate and get local governments doing their bit to ensure we get that supply, we are never going to solve the housing prices, for, especially for first-time buyers and young people. And I am going to be absolutely committed to making sure we get this housing problem solved. And it is complicated, I acknowledge, by the fact that we have 70,000 people a year coming in. We don't control immigration. The federal government does. But if we don't deal with that supply issue and if we don't look at the cost that government imposes on housing, 25% of the cost of every new home built today is all taxes. It's all thanks to provincial, federal, and local taxes. If we don't figure that out and and create opportunities for young people to get into housing, we're never going to solve the problem. And these folks in Victoria haven't got a clue what they're doing, Mike. Kevin Falcon, thank you for coming on today. Pleasure to be on, Mike. Look forward to coming on again. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about bad behavior on airline flights now. Lots of people sick and tired of COVID restrictions. Some of them are breaking rules, the breaking the rules, and in some cases creating a nightmare for flight attendants on some of these flights. I've got the president of the union that represents airline attendants. Uh, standing by but first have a listen to this global news report about the story that everybody heard about this one those knuckleheads who were partying on that sunwing flight down to mexico have a listen partiers drinking dancing and vaping captured in videos from a pre-new year's charter flight to mexico the images on social media have prompted attention and outrage after a report in the journal de montreal including from the prime minister and it's a slap in the face to see people putting themselves, putting their fellow citizens, putting uh, airline workers at risk by being completely irresponsible. Transport Canada is now investigating. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Wesley Lasoski. Wesley is the president of the QP Airline Division Union, uh, representing thousands of flight attendants. Wesley, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, Wesley. Everybody in Canada and a lot of and elsewhere around the world, in some cases, have seen that video of that party flight down to Mexico. What went through your mind when you saw that? Uh, absolute disbelief, for sure. It uh, was definitely one of the most extreme things that we've seen, with just non-compliance on on all levels. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I can imagine just being a flight attendant on that flight and, and trying to deal with that. You have raised concerns about this, like you're seeing more what, rule-breaking on flights, like people who are getting what, hostile toward flight attendants? What's going on? Yeah, so we definitely have seen uh, through the whole pandemic uh, new rules implemented for safety on board. Uh, and then now we're seeing a lot of guests or customers 
obviously getting frustrated with that, and a lot of uh, escalation evolving from non-mask compliance. Yeah. Um, so, you know, our, our crews, our members have definitely turned to mask police on board to try and monitor the situation, try and keep themselves and, you know, the traveling public safe, but it's sometimes met with uh, quite a bit of confrontation. Yeah, no, that's that's a drag because it's not certainly not the flight attendants making the rules, but they're they're required to enforce them, I guess, now. So what are people doing? They're just sick and tired of wearing their masks through the entire flight, so they take them off? I think the big thing is, uh, yeah, mask compliance has kind of gone to the wayside uh, for a, a lot of people, uh, whether it be eating, drinking on board, forgetting to put it on, eating and drinking on board, getting up to use the bathroom, forgetting to bring your mask. It's just a, it's a constant thing that people are forgetting to do. And I think it's part and parcel with, you know, all the service and all those amenities coming back, right? Um, it's not assisting in keeping, you know, masks on the face. Like what, what kind of service? You mean like food service? Exactly. I think it's the, the full meal service, the full bar service, the buy on board service, and the constant interaction is also creating people to take their masks off for extended periods of time or feel more relaxed with taking a mask off, right? So what would you like to see done now to, to address that? Well, I think the big thing is that the airlines and Transport Canada have to move forward with uh, more of a reduced or, or a reduced contact point. So I'm certainly not saying, and, and we're certainly not saying reduce meal, reduce beverages, uh, but what we're saying is it shouldn't be a constant flow. Uh, people obviously need nourishment. They obviously need something to drink on the plane, but it doesn't have to be consistent throughout the whole flight. Um, so in doing that, we would be reducing, you know, the risk to our cabin crew and the traveling public, if there was one, by people masking up, right? It, it's hard for us to give yeah. stuff out and then turn around and say, hey, you need to put your mask on. Uh, what, here's, what about, here's another something, right? What about, what about people listening to that who think like, oh, no, really? Now you're telling me I, I won't be able to get a drink or some food when I, when I want it? Like, you're, you're saying that you're not, you're not saying eliminate food service. You're saying, what, cut it back? Exactly. Yeah, I'm certainly not yeah. saying that. If, if you need something to drink, it's there. But I don't think it should be a constant flow, right? Okay. Speaking to Wesley Lasoski, he's the president of the uh, Flight Attendance Union, QP, uh, Local 4094. Um, what about um, booster shots for flight attendants? Are they considered essential workers, and do they get a do they get priority access to the booster or no? No priority access, no. And something we've been pushing for when the vaccine first came out is allowing access in an expedited fashion for our cabin crew, for sure. Yeah, we also see airlines and, in one case, Canada's largest airport, Pearson International in Toronto, making the case to the government, look, let's start relaxing these testing requirements, too. So we see a lot of pressure from the airlines now to start scaling back some of these COVID rules that are, I guess, a frustration for their for their business. What, what do you think of that idea? I mean, are you happy with the testing regimen that's in place? Do you want to see it scaled back? I, I don't necessarily want to see it scaled back. And to go back to the original question, am I happy with it? I, I think I'm happy with it, but I was much happier with it when it was transparent. Um, most people used to be able to look up until November 27th and see where there was an influx, where people were coming in from that were positive, that was posted through a uh, Canadian government site. That's been eliminated. Um, so that data is not readily available to people. And I think that's the problematic point. If you're going to do the testing, that's great. But what are you doing the testing for? Are a lot of flight attendants getting sick and off the job? Oh, we've had a lot of flight attendants come down, especially through uh, Omicron, for sure. Yeah. And where are they catching Omicron, like the virus? Is there any evidence that there's transmission aboard the flights? 
Um, with any type of virus, it's very hard to pinpoint. Um, we yeah. feel a lot of the cases are work-related, um, but again, it, it's very difficult to pinpoint, right? Yeah. And as far as the the investigation that's going on into that Sunwing party flight, like that video went viral. Everyone saw it. It was just out of control. I mean, it looked like the whole flight was just partying, unmasked, vaping, dancing. There is an investigation going on. Are you confident in that investigation? Like, what do you want to see that investigation look at? I'm, I'm confident in the investigation for sure. And I think the big things that need to be looked into are the regular violations along with mass compliance. So obviously the vaping, the standing up, the congregating on a plane, those are all serious issues all the time. And then obviously with the pandemic, it's the masking issue. So I think there was a lot of light shone on that. And I think when the prime minister commented on it, hopefully that'll carry some weight behind it to get it yeah. thoroughly investigated. Okay, we just got 30 seconds left here. Are you, you were mentioning that you're seeing more kind of non-compliance and passengers who are getting unruly. They don't want to wear their mask. Is there any kind of statistical evidence to back that up? I mean, do you guys track these kind of cases? It's all tracked by the individual companies and the government uh, yeah. through that kind of stuff. So we don't have a lot of statistical thing. And I just think it's a lot of uh, pent-up aggression that happens on, on a pretty, pretty regular basis is what yeah. we're saying. It, we don't see a lot of the extreme cases, obviously, like the Sunwing yeah. uh, issue. Okay, we're following it closely. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you. I appreciate having me. All right, let's check in with Claire Newell now with Travel Best Bets. She is Global TV's travel expert. Claire, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Mike. You bet, Claire. Now, Claire, everyone in Canada and beyond has seen that viral video now of those knuckleheads partying on that Sunwing flight down to Mexico. It looked like the whole flight was unmasked, partying, drinking, dancing, vaping, Transport Canada investigating now. What went through your mind, Claire, when you saw that video? Well, if you saw me right now, you'd see my eyes rolling, my head shaking. Honestly, it was shocking and I have traveled during the pandemic I've seen nothing like that and the excuse of the uh, organizer saying that it was a chartered flight and they could kind of do what they want it was a you know it was it's ridiculous and it was I, I felt just so badly for the in-flight crew who were yeah. likely not only feared uh, fearful because of transmission of Omicron and, or other COVID variants and you know, trying to wrangle that all, it, the, the flight attendant's job is to actually keep the, the people who are on board safe. And there was no way they could control them. It must have been horrible for them. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what they're saying. I just spoke to the president of the flight attendants union, Claire, and one of the things that they're asking the government for now is they, they want more protections for flight attendants. And one of the ideas they've raised is, dropping food service on flights to remove the the opportunity for people to take their mask off. I don't know. Do you think that's going too far or do you, would you agree with that? You know, I, you know, on a personal level, I've traveled quite a bit during the pandemic, during that window when we had the advisory to avoid non-essential travel lifted. It was October 20th through until kind of mid-December. And I was on uh, eight flights. Some of them were longer. Some of them were shorter. Um, I chose not to eat during the short haul flights. I just left my N95 mask on. On the longer haul flights, I actually chose to eat. I left my snack until everyone else had eaten and put their masks back on. Then I quickly took off mine, ate and put my N95 back on. And I, I don't think it's a bad idea while 
COVID, uh, the Omicron variant, it's just so prevalent in our community and people are nervous about it. And I, I think that, I don't think it's a bad idea. On long haul flights, it's harder to do, Mike, because people yeah. do get hungry and thirsty, but um, people should take their own precautions when they're going on board uh, both long and short haul flights and do what they feel is right to protect themselves. Okay, people are concerned for sure, but I it looks like people are still traveling. People are still going on vacay. I mean, the travel advisory is still in place, but Claire, is yeah. your phone still ringing? I mean, are people looking to go on holiday? It is, and you know, it's just because there's a lot of pent-up demand, and I, I should clarify that there are several groups. I, I always kind of put people into three different groups. The people that are still traveling, there are the people that are more cautious, waiting for the advisory to be lifted, and then there are others who kind of dug their heels in and saying, I'm not going until this is completely over, and that could be years for those people. Um, so yes, there are people that are traveling with the advisory still in place, uh, many, given the fact that they have actually recovered from COVID-19, others, they have to go for work or for other essential reasons. Um, but there's, you know, there, there, the planes are, are still going, even though we've had a lot of consolidation of flights recently. You probably just heard if you've been following, like I know you always do, Mike, um, yeah. that WestJet had, a, they were consolidating 15% of their flights uh, through January. That has been extended and they're kind of they're cutting 20 percent of their flights through wow. until the end of february and it's a it's a whole combination of reasons there's a lot of people who won't travel they're afraid right now the advisory is in place it's expensive to get that pcr or other molecular test that's accepted for your return flight back to canada so that period that october 20th through until mid-december when the advisory was lifted the phones were buzzing and they're still buzzing with yeah. people who are putting on very flexible trips, ones that um, they can cancel if need be. They're looking to put on, some are putting on spring break, which I know is not that far away. Others putting on their summer vacations to Europe and others that are putting on their Christmas vacations for wow. 2022, which I've actually already booked completely cancelable if I need to. Okay. Speaking of Claire Newell from Travel Best Bets, she's Global TV's travel expert. So that's interesting, Claire. Yeah, people are still traveling. They're still going on vacay for sure. Maybe some not. You mentioned some of those flights being canceled for a number of reasons. You know, we hear a lot of uh, flight attendants and, and other personnel in the airlines uh, booking off sick. Like that's happening everywhere. Uh, is that how is that impacting your customers and your plans? Um, luckily, we have not had too many passengers that have been impacted. The airlines are doing a very good job, not just the ones here in Canada, but around the world, doing jobs to consolidate the flights for the, the routes that actually have multiple flights a day. So uh, they would look to change and maybe do, say there's three flights a day to L.A., they'll then maybe do one. But if there's a route that's got just one flight a day or one flight uh, just every couple of days, they're, they're trying not to impact those people. So they're doing a really good job given the circumstances. The travel restrictions combined with the fact that Omicron is hitting their in-flight crew so hard, um, they're doing the best they can. No one anticipated this. Now, Claire, last question for you. You mentioned those testing regimens that are still in place for international travelers having to show those negative COVID tests. It's interesting to see we've got some of the largest airlines in the country and the busiest airport in the Toronto Pearson Airport, also WestJet Air Canada, asking the government, look, 
is it let's drop these tests now let's drop these tests and get people let's streamline this and get people flying again what do you think of that idea well well it's actually um not that they're asking to stop the pcr or other molecular tests to return to come back to canada it's that second pcr test once you land in a canadian airport so that what that means is that right now um passengers are being tested twice within a 72 hour period right um what you might be talking about is the fact that there are actually some countries around the world that are starting to drop the pre-flight test requirement and actually focus more on proof of vaccination some including a booster to be able to to get into the country. The UK did that. So there's actually no pre-flight requirement to fly there now. And so we've seen not just the UK, the Bahamas has stopped that. And what we saw, have seen in the UK is now the Brits are traveling. And there are certain destinations like Spain and Portugal, Greece and Italy that the Brits love that are now, since that has been dropped in the past couple of weeks, the demand for those destinations, for for the Brits to fly, is now uh, exceeding pre-pandemic levels. Okay, maybe we're going to get back to normal here later this year, or some form of normal. I sure hope so. Claire, thank you for coming on. Thanks so much, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about your local tax dollars now in the city of Vancouver. Local property taxes this year in the city going up 6.35%. That is a significant tax increase. Could be an even bigger tax, local tax hike in Vancouver next year. Now, where does the money go? Well, let's take a look at the traditional core services that are the responsibility of municipalities. Local governments here in BC responsible for local roads. Yeah, okay, that's the big one. How about police services locally? Yeah, that is huge too. That's a big part of the budget in Vancouver. How about sewers? Yeah, that, that's a big one as well. But take a look what's going on in Vancouver now. Okay, so when you take a look at where the spending goes in Vancouver, brand new report out that says $219 million was spent by the city in 2021 on areas that are provincial and federal jurisdiction. Not municipal jurisdiction, not municipal responsibility, provincial and federal responsibilities, $219 million. That is 15% of the budget in the city of Vancouver. It includes $27 million on social issues in the city, including mental health and opioid addiction. $168 million on affordable housing, which includes modular housing for the homeless. Got Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby Young standing by to discuss this. First, have a listen to this. Now, this is Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart speaking yesterday, he was asked about this. What about this not these non-municipal priorities that the municipality is spending so much money on? Here's what he had to say about it. My opponents uh, want to cut, cut, cut. Uh, you know, in, in 2018, when Ken Sim was running for the NPA, he didn't want to build the city. He wanted to cut, cut, cut. He wanted to cut the uh, services, especially those who are, you know, that are going towards the most vulnerable. So my question 
to who those who want to cut is what services are they going to cut first? Are they going to shut down overdose prevention sites in the middle of a of an overdose crisis? Are they going to shut uh, homeless shelters? Are they going to shut libraries? Are they going to shut um, you know uh, temporary modular housing? I mean. You can say in a general way that that you're in favor of austerity, but really what people want to know is what are the services are they going to cut and who are they going to abandon in the city? I won't abandon anybody. I'm moving forward, working with senior governments, but we'll have to step in when folks need help. Okay, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart speaking yesterday when he was asked about this non-core spending in the city on provincial and federal areas of jurisdiction. Let's check in with Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Pleased to welcome her back. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. A lot of this information was revealed as, as a result of your digging and, and putting forward motions at Council. Can you tell me your concerns here? Yeah, I, I can tell you exactly my concerns, and I'm so glad that you played that clip from Kennedy Stewart around... Uh, why it, cause it really speaks to why you should care right and this whole cut 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 r- ridiculousness um, if I can say that and here's why you should care I put the motion for because there's a constant tension between property taxes going up higher than the rest of the region while yeah. residents feel that the quality of their services is declining and Kennedy Stewart said he's been building a city but what he has been doing is actually cutting our core community infrastructure we are not investing in our infrastructure and in fact this council is about to go into completing a new capital plan and staff have identified that we have an infrastructure deficit we should be spending about 625 million dollars every year over doing our core infrastructure our streets our fire halls libraries the mayor mentioned libraries parks ice rinks our seawall we've seen the damage that climate change is doing to our assets and instead of spending 625, the city's spending around 300 million. We have a gap of 300 million dollars in annual spend every year, and we're not building the city. And our sewers, water, sidewalks, curb cuts—we can't afford to do them to make sure pedestrians have a are, are safe and have a, a good, friendly public space on streets. So I would argue with the mayor that by making these choices and not getting our fair share of funding for critical issues like affordable housing, we are actually not building the city. We're letting the city deteriorate. Right. You mentioned uh, some of the public frustration out there with the the rate of, of tax increases in the city of Vancouver. So this year, we've got a 6.35% property tax increase. How does that compare to other municipalities in the region? Is that high? It is very high compared to the other municipalities in the region. In fact, we are oftentimes almost double the rest of the region. Vancouver is notoriously higher. And it's not just each annual increase. It's cumulative under this four-year uh, council, ca- taxes will have gone up cumulatively almost 25%. Wow. Think about that. That's significant. And, you know, they'll say, well, it's only $168 this year, but it's $168 plus 168 plus 168, and it keeps going up and up and up. And what's really concerning is that the financial modeling that the City of Vancouver staff are showing us are saying that for the next several years, they envision a property tax increase of a minimum of 9 or 10% every year. And that's without reviewing, renewing our core infrastructure that I've told you about, where we have a massive right. gap. So we're actually not meeting our responsibilities as a city. Let's talk about some of this spending that goes toward areas that are not strictly municipal jurisdiction. So we're talking about areas of provincial and federal responsibility. $219 million by the city of Vancouver, 15% of the city's budget. 
That is a lot. Now, we, we went over a little bit of some of this spending. Uh, $168 million on affordable housing. $27 million on pressing social prob- program, uh, problems like opioid addiction. Uh, $23 million on child care. W- w- are you saying that the city should not be spending that money? That, that th- this is the area for senior levels of government and the city should stay out of it? I'm saying that we need to have the conversation and it has been really difficult to get this information and to daylight this information in a way that we can have really open, transparent conversations about making choices. First of all, I don't think we're getting our fair share in terms of government support. So if you look at that $168 million on housing, it shows that we got in the same report back in less than 40 from senior levels of government. So the City of Vancouver yeah. is still shouldering the lion's share. And there's other ways that we can enable housing through provision of city land, through smart regulation and policy, through things like inclusionary zoning, when the market is building housing, they have to include a number of affordable units where we can work really smart, but we don't necessarily have to spend the same financial bottom line. And we can actually do things like um, fixing the gas town streets that are deteriorating in that historic neighborhood or renewing our fire halls, um, which are decrepit, a number of them. And that, that's incredibly important for emergency services. And look at the seawall, um, which is beloved, and we don't have enough funds to fix that. Um, okay. That was identified when I was in the park board, we didn't have enough money. Okay, so you're saying when we take a look at the the strictly municipal areas of jurisdiction, these are the areas where the city is responsible. They must spend on these priorities. You're saying that 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 is not, that's falling off the table, like they're not spending enough on on road maintenance, they're not spending enough on, did you say fire services? We're we're not. Um, We've had an audit and looked at all of the assets that sit under the City of Vancouver's responsibility. It's about $25 billion worth in assets, and so that's sewer pipes, water pipes, roads, community centers, fire halls, libraries, seawalls and trails, um, parks, all of those, you know, sidewalks, all of those things. And the quality of those assets is deteriorating to the point that we're going to have some significant issues with some of those facilities. Speaking to Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, now the the city will say and, and the mayor will make the point that the reason that the city is spending in these areas like housing, child care, uh, opioid addiction is because these these priorities have been downloaded. Like other other levels of government, the feds, the province have not adequately addressed these pressures in the city. So someone has to step up and do something so the city will take the ball and run with it, that the costs have been downloaded onto the city and that's why they have to spend this money. Are you, are you buying that explanation? No, I'm not buying that explanation entirely. Um, and let me give you something. First of all, I think if Vancouver spends the money, then it's easy for the other levels of government to go, oh, thanks, Vancouver. You guys are absorbing picking that up. That's great. Um, we don't have to. So I think there's been some of that. Um, I also think that we are seeing unprecedented levels of investment in things like childcare. Um, that's one where this memo shows $22 million spent there. So if the province is stepping up, and kudos to them for doing that, then that gives Vancouver an opportunity to do something like build a community centre in the Riverview District where that entire community has built up now and they have no community amenities. Right. Okay, last question for you, Councillor. So we're, we're going into an election year here, and a lot of these issues and debates will be front and center what would be your your message to voters on this in terms of the spending priorities of the city my message would on the spending priorities is that you need to 
uh, elect a different council and a different mayor because I do want to build the city, and I think that Kennedy is doing the exact opposite. And uh, and I I really really want to see livability in Vancouver, and that means that we have to invest in the infrastructure. Okay, we're following these issues closely. Thank you for coming on to talk about it today. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Okay, here we go now with the great cost of living debate, the inflation rate at record highs right now. What should the government do about it? Hike interest rates? Cut taxes? Maybe increase taxes on the wealthy? We've got a great panel standing by on this, but first, have a listen to this report now from Global News. Statistics Canada says the annual pace of inflation went up to 4.8% in December, the kind of spike last seen in 1991. The most immediate impacts are on groceries, up by an average of 5.7%. The global shortage of microchips adding 5.7% to the cost of digital devices and appliances, and helping to drive up car prices by an average of 7.2%. We've also seen airlines uh, over 20%. Okay, everything seems to be going up, up, and away. Let's discuss now with our panel. David McDonald joins us today, Senior Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. David, thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. Appreciate it a lot. Franco Terrazano on the line, Federal Director at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Franco. Hey, thanks for having me on. Okay, thank you, gentlemen, to both of you. David McDonald, let me go to you first. This inflation right now, what kind of impact does that have on Canadians and what do you think government should do about it? Yeah, I mean, there's there's several big parts that are really driving the underlying rate. Um, so house prices, gas prices, car prices, and meat prices are kind of the big drivers that are very expensive and have seen big increases over the past, uh, you know, over the past year. And so those are being driven by by different things. I mean, the, the problem with car prices uh, has to do with the chip shortage, as was mentioned in the report. Uh, the increase in house prices has to do with a lot more investor activity in real estate markets and big centers and very low interest rates. Um, if we look at gasoline prices, this has to do with international gas prices. And so um, certainly, I just not say that inflation isn't happening. It's certainly happening, uh, and we're seeing it in, in some other areas. Uh, you know, this latest number at 4.8, pretty similar to 4.7 that we've seen for the past uh, two previous months. If there's any sliver of good news uh, in this last inflation uh, announcement, it said instead of going the full year, if you just look at the month-to-month change in prices, there was a slight decline between November and December. Uh, This is in large part due to the fact that while gas prices are way up compared to this time last year, they're down a little bit in December compared to November, and so you see a bit of moderation there. Should the government cut taxes to give people a break? David. Well, I mean, interest, interestingly, that would probably, you know, there's potential that would increase inflation. I would give more money to people in their pockets to go out and spend it. Um, you know, if the government, uh, you know, broad-based tax cut would probably put, you know, more pressure on CPI. I mean, I suppose, you know, there's there's potentially some argument to, to potentially increase um, you know, payments to lower income households. I mean, part of the issue here, too, is, is a lot of the government transfers that do exist, say for low income seniors or for low income families with children, are already indexed to inflation. There's some delays there, but I mean, households sure. should see an increase in, in what they get from the government. Okay, Franco, Ter- Franco Terrazano. So David says if you cut taxes, you could potentially make it even worse. Your thoughts? Well, of course, I, I completely disagree. I mean, we should be seeing taxes going down. Uh, certainly not up, which they're, which is happening in Canada. I mean, we can get into this, but you have a bunch of countries around the world, a bunch of American states 
States and other places, they're acknowledging that there's an inflation issue here. And what they're doing is they're providing relief at the pumps on electricity bills through lower taxes. Now, what we want to see is we want to see the government, particularly our own federal government, stop, stop making the situation worse. So why are we seeing these rising prices? Well, first, you've got to talk about the 1,000-pound gorilla in the room, and that's the federal government's central bank, the Bank of Canada. Its printing press has been on overdrive during the pandemic. It's created more than $370 billion since COVID-19 touched down. And how is it creating new money? Well, in large part, it's buying up Government of Canada debt. And the more that this central bank prints, the more dollars it prints, the less your dollars buy. So we see Ottawa financing a good chunk of its deficit spending by eroding the value in your paychecks, by eroding the value in your savings account. Okay, David McDonald, do you support a wealth tax in Canada? Should that be one of the things the government should consider? Tax the wealthy. Uh, I mean, it is it is another way. I mean, certainly increasing interest rates is one way to, to withdraw money from the economy. That's what the Bank of Canada does. It modifies interest rates to pull money out of the economy and therefore reduce people's spending power. Um, another way to pull money out of the economy is to increase taxes, that's for sure. Um, and certainly there have been people who've done great during the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic's not been a great time for most Canadians. Uh, but if you look at the wealthiest CEOs, uh, if you look at the wealthiest Canadians in general, a uh, big part of the corporate sector has done really well during the pandemic. They happen to be on the right side of all this. And so they saw big increases in their paychecks and in their wealth. Uh, and so wealth tax or higher corporate taxes is a way to pull money out of the economy, raise revenues to pay for the things we need, like long-term care and health care, uh, you know, to, trying to build those systems back up. Uh, okay. But it would also be a way to withdraw some money from, uh, from the economy and therefore reduce inflation. Okay, Franco Terrazano, what do you think of that? Tax the rich. <laughs> no, 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 because here's what would happen. You put in a wealth tax, okay? You're going to drive people out of Canada, going to drive assets out of Canada, and what is the government going to do? Well, look at what France ended up doing when it had a wealth tax. It starts to lower the threshold to hit more and more Canadian taxpayers. Um, what we have to see the government do is finally rein in its massive amount of spending. Even if you gave the Trudeau government a wealth tax, all that money, the way it's spending, that's just going to be going to the bond fund managers on Bay Street just to pay the government's debt. Um, now, my counterpart talked about some people who are doing well during the pandemic. You know who's really doing well during the pandemic? <laughs> Government employees, politicians, they haven't missed a payday. So you have people in the private sector who are already overtaxed. They lost their job. They took a pay cut. Many small business owners may have lost their business for good. All the while, our politicians in Ottawa have received not one, but two pay raises during the pandemic. You have more than 312,000 federal government employees who received a pay raise. So if we're going to talk mm. about the divide, a clear divide is between those getting decimated in the private sector and those doing just fine behind the golden, okay. cushy government gates. Okay, David McDonald, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, one of the things we have to realize, of course, is that, that government spending went to something. The major, the major thing that government spending went to was actually support for business. Uh, and so the wage subsidy was the biggest program that the government implemented and one of the big drivers of the deficit. Uh, the second biggest program was uh, for individuals, and it was uh, support for the jobless. The people who lost their jobs received CERB, the CRB, or uh, variations of EI. And so the money the federal government spent went somewhere, went somewhere to support the economy in addition to major transfers to the provinces to rebuild health care and so on. So okay. when we talk about cutting government expenditures, it's worthwhile figuring out 
what should we have avoided? Should we have avoided business support, support for the jobless, support for health care? We could have. I mean, that would have created a smaller deficit, but it's probably not okay. a good idea. All right. Welcome back. As we continue talking about inflation and the cost of living with my guest, David McDonald, Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Lots of calls. Paul in Surrey. Hi, Paul. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Uh, the last thing we need to do is increase uh, interest rates. That would be devastating to uh, a lot of people uh, in this time. But the root cause uh, for inflation is the steamship uh, companies are excessively charging freight. Uh, before COVID, I could bring 10 containers in, for example, for $20,000. Last year, it was $200,000. So the profit on that is now $400,000. So if the shipping companies decrease their rates, then the cost of goods go down. Food, for example, uh, packaging. Okay, that's an interesting point. Thank you for sharing that. David McDonald, I mean, supply chain issues, is that behind some of this inflation? Yeah, certainly it's part of some of it. Uh, it's a bit more uh, at play in the U.S. than it is here. I mean, one, one of the interesting features is that, yes, shipping rates have gone up. The profit for shipping companies has gone through the roof. And so mm. there's, this, there's profit-taking here as well that, yes, prices are going up. But, uh, you know, you think of the meat industry as well. I mean, the profits in, in, in the meat industry have gone through the roof. I mean, there's only actually really three... Uh, three meatpacking plants that, that cover most of the country in Canada and the profit for those companies have gone through the roof. So, so, so you would taking going on here. So you would tax them then, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, that's a possibility is a higher corporate income tax, which would, which would yeah. tax people on the profit side, but it's also better recognition that, that, uh, you know, you've got real market concentration in some of these sectors and these companies are not the ones taking a bath. They're passing it on to, you know, the okay. businesses that are just trying to get their goods through. Okay, Franco, what about that? Tax these profiteers. Your thoughts? No, no more taxes. I mean, Canadians are already paying enough taxes. One thing that if you want to talk about fairness when it comes to business, well, let's just stop raising taxes on working class Canadians through carbon taxes, payroll tax hikes, alcohol tax increases, and then having our politicians turn around and give billions of dollars uh, to corporations. You know, the Trudeau Mm. government has raised the carbon tax, has raised payroll taxes, has raised alcohol taxes. But over the last five years, They've announced $15 billion in corporate welfare. And I'm not talking about the supports to help the gym owner, to help the restaurant keep their lights on. I'm talking about hand-picked businesses, corporate welfare. And just if I continue for a second, we're also seeing it at the provincial level. Premier Jason Kenney, $5 billion in corporate welfare. Premier Ford, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to the Ford Motor Company that ended up reducing jobs. Okay, let's go back to the phone lines and speak to Daryl in Coquitlam. Hi, Daryl, go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just sure. wanted to ask your, both your guests that the last time inflation was rampant in Canada in the late 70s and early 80s, the weapons and policies the government used were wage and price controls, mm. uh, COLA, and very high interest rates. I think the first home I bought in 1982 was between 18 and 19.5%. And, and inflation is a worldwide event. The United States is over 7%, and the United Kingdom is probably way over 5 I'll, I'll wait for your Okay, Th- thank you. Thank you for raising those points. David McDonald, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the situation is somewhat different today than it would have been in the 1980s in the sense that there is just so much more private sector debt today, uh, not only on the household side in terms of mortgages, but also on the corporate side, that it's, it's extremely unlikely we'd ever see interest rates that high. I actually think very small increases in interest rates now will have a huge effect on the economy just because people are so leveraged up because house prices on the, ho- on the private side 
uh, are so much higher today uh, okay. than they were in the in the 1970s. Back to the phone lines, James in White Rock. Hi, James. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I would like to see the the federal government claw back all the wage subsidies to the major corporations that gave their CEOs monster bonuses this year. And I'd also like the province to finally tell me where the phantom 13 cents a liter for gasoline, where they all shrugged their shoulders and said, I don't know, where is it going? (laughs) Okay, thank you for that. Franco, your thoughts? Well, I I agree on the wage subsidies. I mean, look, if your business, you have every right to fatten your C-suite as much as you want, but not with taxpayers' money. So I agree completely. If a business uh, increased their C-suite bonuses, stuff like that, while taking the wage subsidies, they they should be forced to pay it back. Uh, Political parties. Should also be forced to pay it back. They helped themselves to the uh, the wage subsidy that was meant for struggling businesses and organizations. They should be able to force it back as well. On the gas prices, I mean, we've yeah. seen carbon taxes go up twice during the pandemic, going up for a third time um, this April. Remember, by 2030, Trudeau wants to soak you if you have a if you have a Dodge Caravan or something like that for another 40 cents a liter through his carbon tax and add on a second carbon tax. Okay, back to the phone lines, Rick and Delta. Hi, Rick. Go ahead. Well, a couple of months ago, before this became such a huge issue, the inflation, I had a conversation with a friend of mine, and his comment was, and one of your uh, folks there touched on it, was that uh, the highest inflation rates in the world were in Canada and the USA, and it was also uh, the location uh, or the countries that printed the most uh, pandemic money and the lowest inflations were countries that printed the least. And I just Mm. wondered about the comments you might make about that. Can I Uh, I jump in on that one? Yeah, go ahead. Um, So that's a great point. So there are other countries that are, that are seeing inflation. Surprise, surprise. What are they doing? Massive deficits financed by the printing press, right? More dollars, the government central banks create the less that your dollars buy. You look at Switzerland, you look at Japan, you've seen monetary inflation relatively low, and you've seen uh, consumer price inflation also relatively low. Okay, also, well, let, we hear let me get, well, let me, hang on a sec. Let, just let me get David's, as in the interest of time, get David's response on that. So, David, like overspending, deficits too large, your thoughts? Well, I mean, the deficit was, was used to do something, which is to support business, support the jobless, support the health care system. Sure, we could have spent a lot less on that. I mean, the deficits would have appeared at the provincial level, probably. We could have stuck it to the provinces. Uh, I'm not sure that's the right approach. Uh, you know, the, the money went for something quite specific and important. Uh, and so that's one of the roles of the federal government is to support the rest of the country, support the businesses, joblesses, and the provinces uh, in a very difficult time. Fr- Franco, I'll give you the last word there. you got 30 seconds here. Well, the problem is, is that the federal government hasn't prioritized it at all. Even in 2020, most of the federal government's budget was on non-pandemic spending. Before the pandemic, the federal government was spending all-time highs, spent more in 2018 during, than during any single year during World War II. And now we are learning that uh, just more government spending it has a cost, and we're seeing okay. it in inflation and in our wallets. Okay, guys, I want to thank both of you for a really good discussion. We had lots of calls there, and we couldn't get to everybody. Uh, I'd love to have you both back, and we'll do it again.